Our text for this morning is Matthew 27, starting in verse 45. Read with me. It says this, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Let's pray again. Father, this is your word. You give it to us to increase our delight in you, that we would know you, that we would know that you alone are worthy of worship, and that we would know how to worship you rightly. So God, increase in us love for you. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to that love to obey, work in us. We're dependent upon you. Nothing that happens here can happen apart from you and from the work of your Spirit. So please, Lord, we, we plead with you for mercy that, that you would work. Amen. So there, there are two things I think we need to see in the text, and the first is that Jesus dies under the wrath of God. Now, Matthew opens his gospel account with the reminder that God's people are trapped in sin. And when we read through Matthew 1, because we get this big, long uh, genealogy to start, and there are you know, other things that are happening around the birth of Jesus that, that we remember, that our eyes are drawn to, it, it might be easy to miss that in the midst of what Matthew is telling us around Jesus' birth. But I want you to remember what the angel said to Joseph. Remember, Joseph was in the place where he was planning to divorce Mary. I mean, you understand and you remember, we've talked about this before, but just by way of reminder, we remember that at this point, when we say that he was getting ready to divorce her, there was this period of betrothal, there was a commitment they were going to be married that had not yet been finalized, and yet to break that betrothal was like a divorce. It was, it was just as significant. And so, Joseph is planning to divorce Mary because she's pregnant, and he knew, okay, that, that's not my kid. But the angels tell him, the angel that comes to him says, 
Don't be afraid. Take her as your wife. This child is from and of the Holy Spirit. She would have a son, Jesus, remember what he says, who would save his people from their sins. And so that establishes for us context for Matthew that takes us all the way back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. There we, we learn about God creating all that is, specifically mankind. He forms Adam and Eve in his own image. He puts them over, the, uh, over all that he has made. They are to exercise dominion over his creation as his kingdom representatives to the creation, to all of creation. They were to be fruitful and they were to multiply. They were to fill creation with more image bearers who were gladly living under the rule and reign of God, who were gladly submitting to him as their king. And so in this way, his kingdom would fill the whole of creation, would fill it all. But Adam failed. See, rather than enjoying his special, intimate relationship with God, he rebelled. Rather than exercising dominion over the creation, he was dominated by a creature. He was dominated by the serpent who convinced him that God was not to be trusted. Don't trust his word. So Adam rejected nearness with God in order to claim authority for himself, and in doing so, plunged the whole of creation into chaos. Sin and death latched onto God's creation, and it oozed its way through the whole thing. Adam and Eve and everyone born after them now corrupted by sin, destined to die. And despite moments where it seemed like someone has come along, there is someone here now that maybe is going to reverse what Adam has done, nothing changed. Because everyone failed. Every single person failed. Just like Adam. Humanity was, was gripped way too tightly by sin and death in order for anyone to be able to just come along and save themselves, much less the whole world. But that's what God himself steps into. God the Son has taken on humanity, born Jesus of Nazareth to Mary and Joseph. And through his life and ministry, what Matthew has been showing us is that evil, sin, death, it's all being pushed back. Whereas Adam submitted to the serpent, he was dominated. Jesus rebukes Satan in the wilderness. He does not fail to trust the word of God, but trusts it completely. He is the faithful son of God who trusts without wavering. And so through his ministry, he brings the kingdom of God into the world. He had come healing the crippled, the deaf, the blind. He's delivered people from demonic possession. He's cured the sick. He's even raised people from the dead. But he also comes teaching. He explains the standards and the values of his kingdom. But rather than placing these on people as a crushing burden, he urges them, come to me. 
He says that his burden is easy. His yoke is light. Salvation is available in him as the one sent into the world to take away sin. But that sets him at odds with the religious establishment. He rebukes them and their corrupt worship practices, and this finally just pushes them right over the edge. They submit to their sinful impulses. They're dominated by their sinful flesh and come up with a plan to kill him. They even enlist one of his own disciples who loves silver more than he loves the Christ, which is what gets us to our passage this morning, Jesus dying on a Roman cross. So we start by reading that it was from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. So this is cluing us in that this is happening in the middle of the day. The sixth hour was 12 o'clock, the ninth hour, 3 o'clock. So this is all happening right smack dab in the middle of the day. So immediately we understand this is not, this is not normal, this is out of the ordinary, which is obviously what Matthew wants us to see, because what Matthew is pointing us toward, that on the cross, God's judgment against sin is being poured out on Jesus. Jesus himself has been talking about this since Matthew 16. After Peter professes him to be the Christ, Jesus starts teaching his disciples that he must suffer and be killed. I mean, you remember that passage, right? Peter says, you're the Christ. Jesus says, you're right. I'm going to suffer and die. Peter's like, no, you're not. Jesus rebukes him. He says this multiple times. But then he also explains why this is the case, why it was that he was coming to die. In Matthew 20, 28, he tells them, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That establishes us, that gives us all the context that we need to understand Jesus' agony in Gethsemane, in the Garden of Gethsemane. There he prayed that if possible, the cup that he was carrying would pass from him, or the cup that would be poured out on him would pass from him. And if you remember, you know, Michael explained to us that this cup was a, a reference to the cup of God's wrath. The image of God pouring out his wrath uh, uh, to describe his coming judgment, that happens over and over in the prophets. They use this image repeatedly to, de- to describe his coming judgment against sin. But that's also true of darkness. The prophets also use darkness in this way to describe the coming judgment of God against sin. Isaiah 13, 10, and 11 say, For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. So the darkness that's covering the land, smack dab in the middle of the day, is to point us to Jesus suffering the Father's wrath against his sin. That's why it was dark. This is what was happening. The cup of the fury of God's wrath being poured out in full on the head of Christ. 
In his own words, Jesus' own words here clue us in that this is what's taking place. You're probably familiar with his cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That this comes from Psalm 22.1. And if we were to look at Psalm 22.1, what we would find is David crying out to God because he's suffering at the hands of wicked people, even though he's acted righteously. You know, in that moment, he, he feels like God has abandoned him. He's acted and lived in righteousness, and yet suffering is just relentless. It's just being poured out over and over. But also in that, he feels that it's unjustified. He's done nothing wrong to, des- to deserve the hate and the scorn that is being heaped up on him by the wicked, and yet nothing is, is being done. He sees no deliverance. He feels like God is far from him. So Jesus, in crying out in this way, is identifying with the righteous servant of God, who God has seemingly abandoned to suffer at the hands of wicked, godless men. And that should be particularly jarring when we think about the way that Jesus has described his relationship with the Father, already in the book of Matthew. Back in in Matthew 11... He says that no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. This is pointing to just the depth of the intimacy that existed in the relationship between Father and Son, and that had always existed from eternity past. They had always shared this. But on the cross, the Son took the full force of the wrath of God, the wrath of the Father, against sin. And in that moment, the son felt the full weight of being abandoned by the father. Now, we're all born into Adam. Paul makes this abundantly clear for you in Romans 5, 12 to 21. Jot it down, read it. Because there Paul lays out that in Adam... We are guilty. This is obvious and has been obvious even before the law was introduced into the world because after Adam, between Adam and Moses, he says, everyone dies. Everyone continues to die. Why? Because they are guilty of sin. And this continues on now. Born outside of Christ, born under Adam, we stand condemned. And not just because of our association with Adam, we, like Adam, reject God's rule and try to claim it for ourselves. And so what that means is that the cup that is being poured out on Jesus here, we deserved. Christ, for the Christian, has taken it all. He suffered an eternity worth, an eternity's worth, of God's wrath in our place. And so, for the Christian, this raises the question, does this not fill you with joy? Like, when, when you stop to think about it, do you stop to think about it? At any point in the day, 
that I'm reconciled to God, whom I scorned, whom I rejected, whom I rebelled against. I am reconciled to Him, not because I worked to earn it. I couldn't. But because His Son took His wrath in my place. So that I feel you with joy. And if not, why not? He suffered for you and me. Do we, do we grasp the significance of this? We deserve hell. And Jesus took an eternity worth of it in three hours for us to have life. And we receive that not by working for it, but by trusting that he was something we could never be. He was something that was required of us. He was perfectly righteous. He was condemned for our sin, and by faith we receive his righteousness. Peter and, and Paul both pick up on this th- throughout the New Testament. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And Peter, in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus served as our substitute by taking the penalty that we earned for our sin to satisfy God's righteous demand For our sins to be forgiven. Our sin was credited to him so that his righteousness could be credited to us by faith. But if you're not a believer in Jesus, the only thing on your side of the ledger is your sin. If you are outside of Christ, the wrath of God for your sins has not been dealt with. My plea is for you to come to Christ in faith and receive mercy. That his atoning work be applied to you. That by faith in him, your sins forgiven, mercy received, sins dealt with. Now, saying that, I want to take a quick detour. Because when we read about the atonement, Jesus' crucifixion, There's actually a couple of objections, and I'll come back to another one in just a minute, but there are a a couple of possible objections that people want to make here. One of them is that, okay, so you're telling me God is all-powerful. Well, if God is all-powerful, then then why is it that Jesus had to suffer and die in this way for my sins to be forgiven? Why couldn't he just forgive my sins? Why couldn't he just say, they're forgiven? Well, that's a problem for two reasons. One, it's a small view of human sin, and it's a small view of God. It's a small view of Him and His holiness. We reject the authority of God. That's what sin is. Rejection of the authority of God, the King of the universe, to try and be our own authority. I I like the way the New City Catechism defines it. It's rejecting or ignoring God in the world that He has made. It's not being or doing what He requires in His law. Think of, it, think of it like a strong but kind and, and gracious king ruling over his people. 
He provides for them. He loves them. He rightly expects that they honor him by gladly by, honor him by uh, gladly submitting to his rule. But he's good, so the law that he lays out, that he expects them to gladly submit to, promotes their flourishing. It is for their good, it is to their benefit that they do as he says and give him honor. Now, what if his subjects rebelled? What if they had utter disregard for every edict that their king gave because they were like, I don't want it. I don't want your rule over me. Is the king in that moment, are we going to look at him and say, you know what, you should just let bygones be bygones? He's not going to do that if he's a good king. He's going to throw them in prison. He's going to put to death those citizens that are guilty of treason. And we're not going to look at him when he does that and go, well, that's not right. And that's because none of us want a king who overlooks evil. We would scream at the top of our lungs and say, no, that's unjust. That's not right. And then we would long for a new king who is good and who is just. So to think that God should just be able to overlook sin, just snap his finger and say, you know what, bygones be bygones, you guys are good. That's applying logic that we would not, that we would not use anywhere else. And it's because we don't want to have to admit that, admit that we are guilty before God. But that's what's foolish. Yes, apart from Christ, we are all guilty before God. And so no, he couldn't just overlook sin. To ignore human sin would make him unjust and untrustworthy. But the cross is God himself dealing with human guilt. And that's why Paul can say in, in Romans 3 that through this, it's the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So coming back to the text, we see that when Jesus cried out as he suffered, the, the crowd around him, they, they begin to renew their taunts. And so the reason for that is because his, his cry of, my God, uh, it sounds similar to Elijah's name. You know, obviously, they don't hear him. They don't hear him clearly. So their first thought is, is he calling for Elijah? He's calling for Elijah. So a, a few verses back, if we were in this, look back at the section that we, that we covered last week, we would see that, that as he was being crucified, as they circled around him, as they were scoffing at him, their taunts that they just kept hurling at him was, all right, you've told us you're the Christ. Well, if you're the Christ, we want you to prove it. Come on down, like get down off of the cross. So that taunt and what they were hurling at him is now colliding with the expectation that Elijah would come before the Christ. That goes back to the prophet Malachi. We know that through Malachi, uh, he prophesied that Elijah would come and would prepare the way before the Lord himself came and visited his people. So Elijah is the one who's coming to lead the way for Christ. So in their minds, they're going, he thinks he's the Christ. Now he's calling out to Elijah, and he's a fool. This fool thinks that Elijah's actually about to show up and save him. Now, 
And there is one guy who, I, I like this guy because he's me. You know, it seems like he, he's hedging his bets here. He goes and he runs and he gets the, the sour wine, which is, it's, I think this is different from the wine that we saw last week, the wine that was mixed with gall. This is the cheap wine that the Roman soldiers would have actually had around for themselves. So it seems like this guy is running. He's getting some of that, and he's like, hey, you know what? If Elijah does show up here, I want to make sure that I have done something to get me in the Christ's good graces uh, when he comes down off the cross. But the rest of the crowd, they stop him. They're still like, bro, if this is the Christ, we're going to let Elijah get him down. It's a taunt because they still see him as a fool. What they're saying, what's at the heart of what they're saying is it that the only way that they would believe that he is, in fact, the Christ is if Elijah himself shows up and drags him down. And they're not anticipating that that's going to happen. And for once, they're right. Jesus would come down off the cross, but as a corpse. And because they're the fools, they don't realize that in all of this, Jesus is firmly in control. Jesus cries out one more time, and then we read that he yielded up his spirit. Jesus' body doesn't just give out as death claims another victim. In Jesus, we don't have another failed image bearer that's falling under the weight of his own sin. This is the Son of God submitting to the will of the Father. He willingly gives up himself under the weight of our sin. Not dying under compulsion, he had not lost control. And his own words in John 10, 17, and 18 will not allow us to make that argument. It says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So the crowd's only category for Jesus being the Christ was that if he was saved from death. We've heard this before, something similar anyways. It's very much like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If you remember back, like Matthew 12 and in Matthew 16, they demanded a sign. If you're the Christ, to give us a sign, prove it. We're going to ignore the fact that you just fed 5,000 people with just a couple of fish and some loaves of bread, but we need, a, we need a sign. Because they wanted proof. They wanted proof that Jesus was the Christ. And Jesus told them, okay, you'll have a sign, but the only sign that you'll have is the sign of Jonah. And here it is unfolding. Death had no claim on Jesus. We know that because of the resurrection, but that he dies in this way shows that as well. He was not taken in death at the right time he gave himself up. But I said there was another claim, I think, to, to address here. And that's the claim that you, you might hear some make that describe the cross and, or refer to the cross as nothing more than divine child abuse. But making that claim requires ignorance. That you ignore Jesus' own words and actions. Think about just what we've seen in Matthew, in just the last few chapters. Twice in Gethsemane, we see Jesus willingly submitting to the Father. 
He asks that the cup pass from him, if possible. But if not, not what I will, but as you will. He's willing to drink it. And we see that immediately come to bear because when the uh, group comes to arrest him and his disciples are like, let's go, and they draw swords to fight off those who are, who are coming, he says, stop. He tells them that he could call down legion of angels and the Father would send them to rescue him. But the scriptures wouldn't be fulfilled if he did that. So he allows himself to be taken. It's not a greater power abusing that power over a lesser. I mean, when you hear that, I mean, you immediately understand the Christological implications of it, right? That that's, that's incredibly problematic. The Bible shows that Jesus, God the Son, and, the Fa- and God the Father share eternality, power, authority, honor, glory, and a will. In John 17, Jesus prays that the Father glorify him with the glory he had with him before the world existed. Hebrews tells us that the Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The the Son is in no way lesser in power than the Father. So here's not being abused. He's willingly giving up His life on the cross in humble submission to the Father, wielding the authority that had been given to Him by the Father for our eternal good and the eternal glory of the triune God. A second thing that we need to see in this passage is that Jesus is shown to be the Son of God through the effects of its death. Look at how Matthew, and I just love this, love the way that he wrote it. It sets up what comes after Jesus' death. Jesus yields up his spirit And you just almost feel the joy oozing out of Matthew. Because the next words are, And behold! It's like he's screaming at us, Jesus gives himself up, and look at what happens. The curtain in the temple is torn in two. This curtain was in place from the time the Lord made Israel into his, his covenant people. First, it was in the tabernacle, separating the Holy of Holies from the holy place, and then also the rest of the the tabernacle uh, complex, the rest of the the, the tent, and, and particularly from the people. To enter into the Holy of Holies was to draw near to the presence of God. That's why the curtain was there. It was a stark reminder of what Adam's sin had done. Humanity was cut off from drawing near to God because of our sins. Now, only the high priest could represent the people before God, and he could only do that one day out of the year. And before he could do that, he had to offer sacrifices for himself and for his family, for their sins. Only then could he come in and atone, offer sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. And if he or if anyone else tried to enter the Holy of Holies in any other way, they died. Think about, maybe you remember the story of 
uh, Nadab and Abihu. They, they go in and they offer the, uh, the unauthorized incense before the Lord. And what happens? They die. Why? Because they were not honoring the holiness of the Lord. They were not approaching the Lord in the manner that he had seen fit to give them. If anyone tried to enter into his presence in any other way than by how he had prescribed, they died. So they were tainted by sin, and he was holy. But now, the great high priest has made the once and for all sacrifice to open the way for sinful humanity. Jesus sacrifices himself to take away the sins of all who trust in him. Those united to him by faith are able to draw near to God. It's the righteous servant who died under the wrath of God to make this way for us. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 tells us that we're now able to draw near to God, to receive mercy, and find grace in our time of need. I'm calling an audible. It's not going to be on the screen because I don't have it in my notes. Wasn't going to read it, but we're going to read it because it's just that rich. Listen to Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy or receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We don't go through a mediator who is sinful like we are. We draw near to God through Christ. Now we draw near by faith in Him, we see in Hebrews, to confess sin and ask for help to live holy lives, and we do that in full confidence. Gone is fear that God will strike us down for our sin because Jesus suffered that in our place. We can boldly approach God trusting in His promises that He has fully dealt with our sins in the Son. But it's not just that we draw near to Him. He draws near to us. God Himself takes up residence in His people through the Spirit. The Father and Son make their home with those who love Him. And the Spirit of God works in us to conform us into the likeness of the Son. He causes us to progressively become more like Jesus in our actions, in our words, in our motives. He does this through His inward transforming work. And I think this helps us, and I think you know, James maybe helps us wrap our minds around this. In James 4, 7 and 8, he says, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. These are two sides of the same coin. We draw near to God by resisting the schemes of the devil to entice our flesh into sin. We uh, resist the schemes of the devil by drawing near to God. So drawing near to God is moving away from sin and towards righteousness. Well, God is the one who is working this out in us by his spirit. In Jesus, God has brought us near to himself in a way that the temple and sacrificial system never could. That's the significance, I think, of the earthquake and the splitting rocks that we read connected to the tearing of the curtain. You know, like the darkness 
Uh, these are used to describe the coming judgment of the Lord. The prophets use this as descriptors for the coming judgment of God. And so what this indicates for us, what this tells us, what I think Matthew is, is pointing out, is that the curtain tearing is not just about access to God. It's also foreshadowing the judgment that is coming on the temple that has been hinted at and talked about over the last several chapters in, in Matthew. The temple and its sacrificial system have been made obsolete in the death of Christ. They are done. No longer is this how God's people approach him. They come through Jesus. But then Matthew starts talking about people being raised from the dead. And so the first thing that we see is that the tombs were opened. You know, this seems uh, connects to the earthquake and the rock splitting open. Through those actions, the tombs broken open. Here we are, now they're, now they're open. But then it's like, the way that Matthew writes it, it almost kind of seems like, all right, so were these people raised and hanging out in their stinky tombs for a few days before they came out? But that's not how Matthew describes it. Look at what he says. He says that the saints were raised and they came out of their tombs after his resurrection. He emphasizes that in order to show that they were raised after Jesus himself was raised. It's because what he's emphasizing here is that in Jesus' death, he overthrows death. This is first evident in his resurrection, but also in the raising of God's people. You know, Matthew is, is pointing to what the prophets anticipated with the coming of the Lord. So Isaiah chapters 26 and 27 are about the day of the Lord's salvation for his people. And so within the context of the Lord's coming to save his people, uh, Isaiah 26, 19 says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. So what Matthew is showing is that in Jesus' death, the messianic expectations of salvation have begun. So much so that the grave is coughing up bodies. No longer is fallen humanity unable to draw near to God as new creations in Christ. The access lost is restored and is being restored in full. We're, we're right to see that we have not yet returned. We know this to the nearness that Adam experienced. But the resurrection of the saints at Jesus' resurrection points to the day when we will, when that will be restored. And even better, this mini-resurrection shows that death itself has been overcome in Jesus' death and resurrection which is pointing us ahead to the end of the age. Christ will return, the dead will be raised, and God will make his dwelling place with his people fully, finally, and forever. And of course, we, we do have some questions here, I'm sure. Who are these people, and what happened to them? Matthew doesn't answer either one of those questions. That's not his point. He tells us they're saints, so these are, we know that these are people who trusted God's promise to deliver his people from their sins through his Messiah. As to where they went, I will say this, that I think it is reasonable to conclude that they were raised glorified and ascended to heaven. We know that beyond Jesus, Enoch and Elijah both went bodily into heaven. 
So it's not beyond the Scriptures for someone to be dwelling bodily with the Lord. But I think more important, and more of what brings me to that conclusion, is their association with the resurrection of Jesus. Matthew's point here is that Jesus has conquered death. He mentions their resurrection. This is used to emphasize that point. So if you take that and you couple it with the prophet's anticipation of the scope of the Messiah's work, I think that allows for the conclusion that they were raised glorified and that they then ascended. And I also say that because I don't think it would make sense for Matthew to mention, like, look at these guys, look at what this shows. Jesus has conquered death. He has defeated, he has overcome once and for all. It is beaten in him and then just to come back and be like, yeah, but they died again. Having said that, Matthew says none of those things. So I hold that out in, in an open hand. Say that to say, I think it's reasonable to conclude that. But what Matthew does say is that these events prove Jesus' identity. He is the Christ, the Son of God. And, and watch the kind of the change in the people that are, are, that are around the cross. First, we had this jeering crowd saying, if he's the Christ, he's going to get down. He'll get on down off the cross. But now we have, our attention is turned, our focus is on a different crowd. It's the centurion and those who are with him. And what do they say? Truly, this was the Son of God. There's no more taunts. Jesus' vindication came through the cross, not saving himself from it. And in that, he's overcome sin, he's overcome evil, he's overcome death, saved his people from their sins. And of course, there's one more group that was at Jesus' crucifixion. You have this group of women who had followed him, who have been ministering to him, who are watching all, all of this take place. And on the one hand, I it seems like this is in here because to give a glaring evidence as to who was not there. While Jesus is dying to atone for their sins, his 11 remaining disciples have run off and are hiding. On the other hand, it, it's a commendation of these women. You know, they're waiting nearby to tend to Jesus even in death, as we're going to see in the next couple of weeks. But mentioning his resurrection in this text, Matthew is also, I think, setting up what is to come. Jesus raising from the dead, who does he appear to? These women. Sends them to his disciples. And then he sends out his disciples to proclaim his saving work to the whole world. And that good news has come to us. Beginning with the apostles, this good news has been preserved in the church for 2,000 years. And it ought to be a pride killer for us. Matthew's point is crystal clear. God's wrath for our sin is only satisfied in Jesus' death. We're only able to draw near to God by faith in Him and His finished work. And so what that ought to be producing in us are desires to honor God for his kindness to us. Good deeds that we do ought to be flowing out of happiness in Jesus 
and his saving work. The more that we feed pride, the more we fail to see our need for the Spirit's help moment by moment each day. In, in our pride, we are so quick to forget that we didn't do anything to affect our salvation. It is a work of God through Christ. He chooses us in Christ. He redeems us in Christ. He causes us to be born again in Christ. He will glorify us in Christ. But how quickly do we forget these things? We wrestle with sin, and we come to the point, the sin that we've been struggling with, and we say, this is it. He does not want to hear from me anymore. I cannot take this sin before him anymore. He will not hear me out anymore because I have sinned too much to receive mercy and grace from him. Which is not humility. It's pride masquerading as humility because it says, congratulations, I have finally been the one who has sinned more than his grace. And that's foolishness. Or it shows up in me saying, you know what? I know that I am around people every day who have not been reconciled to God through faith in Christ. They do not believe the things that I believe. But I, I'm not able to evangelize them. I cannot share the gospel with them because I don't know enough. I don't, you know, have the, a, a good enough argument. I'm not capable of laying out these facts in a way that is, that is clear enough and enough to, to, to convince them that I'm right and they're wrong and they should, they should believe putting it all on yourself. Are you the one who chooses in Christ, redeems in Christ, causes to be born again in Christ, glorifies in Christ? No. It's the work of God, and yet we act as if it is because we think, I don't have a good enough argument. On the other side of it, it's, I'm going to save my whole office. I'm going to save everybody around me, which, if your desire is to share the gospel with everyone around you, be fruitful and multiply. Go! Do that. Share. But if you're convinced, actually you should do that whether you can want to or not. You should desire to do that. But if you're convinced that on the basis of the quality of your argument, you're going to do it. You're going to beat them down until they agree with you. It's pride. It's confidence in the flesh and your ability to convince and persuade with your lofty speech. Maybe one more. Do we feel like the Christian life is one of I'm out gathering up enough good deeds. I'm gathering, I'm gathering, I'm gathering, I'm gathering so that then I can then take them before the Father and say, look, look what I did for you. I know that I'm pleasing to you now because look at all the things that I have done and I've gathered and I've, I've brought to you. In our pride, we, convinced, we convince ourselves that God is pleased with us for all of the amazing things that we do. And that is a lie from hell. Does God delight in our good deeds? Yes. And amen. But when they are good deeds that are the fruit of our delight in Him, when they result from hearts that long to give Him the honor that He alone is due, His pleasure is in us because by faith we've been united to Christ. So coming to the cross should be humbling. It reminds us that we couldn't do what was necessary for salvation. 
that alone should keep us humble. But it's also humbling because we need God to help us understand what's even happening on the cross. It's His work. And He had this written down for our good and His glory. We need the Spirit to help us see what the Scriptures are saying and how that applies to us. He leads us into this truth. We're not saved to boast in ourselves. We boast in Christ and in Him crucified for sins. Let's pray. Father, thank you for time to be in your word this morning. Thank you that you've preserved it for us, that you've given it to us that we may know you, we may know what you require of us, we may know how you've met that righteous requirement through the Son. So Lord, help us to trust. Help us to boast in the cross of Christ, coming to it humbled by the knowledge of who we are and the knowledge of what you've done in him. And we do pray in his name. Amen.